If you brought your Bibles, you can open them uh, to the book of Esther. Esther chapter 3 is where we'll be at today, and we'll, we'll actually spend some time reading that in just a few moments. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, I invite you to. Uh, I love the book of Esther. The, the story of Esther is, is one of these classics. It, it's, it's like Shakespeare or Mark Twain. It, it, it's an incredible story that has stood, withstood the test of time and, and comes with some really incredible messages. Before we get to chapter 3, let me catch you up. In chapters 1 and 2, uh, we are introduced first and foremost to King Xerxes. King Xerxes, best way to define him is two words. Those words are no limits. He is the controller, the master and commander of the largest nation empire at the time, spreading all the way from India through Turkey all the way to Africa. And uh, because he is so great, he throws himself a great party, which lasts over six months. And he invites all his magistrates and, and officials, and everyone comes for a six-month-long party celebrating him. And in addition to that, he has a party just for his capital city, for everyone in the, this fortress of Susa, which is modern-day Iraq, in modern-day Iraq. And it's seven days, and he invites everyone from the entire city to come, and they drink out of gold cups. And there is fine silk and linen and all of the best. It's better than the Four Seasons. And everyone is invited, and there are no limits placed on even how much you can drink. And when the king is um, taking full advantage of that, he decides to have his queen Vashti appear before him and all the other men because she is so beautiful, everyone deserves to, to, to look at her. You see, King Xerxes' kingdom has come, his will be done, <laughs> until Vashti says no. Because Vashti refuses to be, be seen as just a possession. We talked about this idea last week, this, this idea of objectification, excarnation. She refused to have her flesh ripped off and just be seen purely as an object. And you got to respect Vashti because this is life and death. To refuse the king is a big deal. And as you can imagine, the king who gets what he wants when he wants it is not happy. And he runs to his advisors, his best guy friends, and says, what can I do? What should I do? And they get together and they, they come up with this plan. And their big fear is that if other women hear about what Vashti has done, they'll start to act the same way with their husbands. And it'll be a slippery slope and it'll be chaos. And, and we've got we've to nip this in the bud immediately because you know these women talk. So we've got to do something. So instead of just admitting that he was being a jerk and that he was drunk and his request was totally out of line, Xerxes, with the help of his advisors, makes a law for the entire empire, and he enlists the Pony Express. He delivers this decree, which is essentially every man is the captain of his own house and should be allowed to say whatever he wants. And that is his response. And, and the, he gets this very organized Pony Express, and they deliver this message to every single mailbox in the entire empire. What do you think women thought that day? Like, 
How many of them actually made that to their husbands? Um, but still, he has an issue with Vashti. She can't be his queen. She, she didn't obey him. She doesn't respect him. And so Vashti is banished from his presence, and he decides to hold a beauty pageant, a, a, a Persian Empire beauty pageant, to find a new queen. All of the women are brought before him, and we know, we see, as, as a reader looking at the words of Scripture, we see that the most unlikely one, an orphaned, exiled, Jewish girl whose Hebrew name is essentially Myrtle, is chosen. And she's given this new name, a Persian name, Esther, which means star. So the king has a new queen. The kingdom has a new queen. Let's pick up the story in chapter 3. I'm just going to read this uh, straight to you. I'll, I'll just read it straight off the screen. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. And all the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect uh, whenever he passed by. For so the king had commanded, but Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. Then the palace officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why are you disobeying the king's command? They spoke to him day after day, but still he refused to comply with the order. So they spoke to Haman about this to see if he would tolerate Mordecai's conduct. Since Mordecai had told them he was a Jew, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. So in the month of April, during the twelfth year of King Xerxes' reign, lots were cast in Haman's presence. The lots were called Purim, to determine the best day and month to take action. And the day selected was March 7th, nearly a year later. Then Haman approached King Xerxes and said, there's a certain race of people scattered through all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people, and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it is not in the king's interest to let them live. If it pleases the king, issue a decree that they be destroyed, and I will give 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators to be deposited in the royal treasury. The king agreed, confirming his decision by removing his signet ring from his finger and giving it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said, the money and the people are both yours to do with as you see fit. So on April 17th, the king's secretaries were summoned and a decree was written exactly as Haman dictated. It was sent to the king's highest officers, the governors of the respective provinces, and the nobles of each province in their own scripts and languages. The decree was written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring. Dispatches were sent by swift messengers, the Pony Express, into all the provinces of the empire, giving the order that all Jews, young and old, including women and children, must be killed 
slaughtered, and annihilated on a single day. This was scheduled to happen on March the 7th of the next year. The property of the Jews would be given to those who killed them. A copy of this decree was to be issued as law in every province and proclaimed to all peoples so that they would be ready to do their duty on the appointed day. At the king's command, the decree went out by swift messengers, and it was also proclaimed in the fortress of Susa, the capital. Then the king and Haman sat down to drink again, but the city of Susa fell into confusion. We begin chapter 3 with the introduction of a new character. His name is Haman. And Haman is a, a, a mere image of King Xerxes. He, he wants to be Xerxes. He, he has titles and authority and honor and praise. Like He is the second in command. And above all, the thing that he wants is Aretha Franklin, right? What you want, baby, I got it. R-E-S-P-E-C-T, right? That's what he wants. That word respect, we've seen it before in Esther already, haven't we? It was a desire for respect. It was a desire for, in Hebrew, the word is obeisance. It means to bow down. It's where we get the word obey. He wants people to obey. And in the story of Esther, who is the one who hasn't obeyed? The king's queen, Vashti. And remember the decree he sends out. He sends out this decree to all the kingdom saying that man is the ruler of his own house. He should be able to say whatever he wants. And when this decree goes out, men everywhere will get the respect they deserve. It is this, this longing for, to gain respect, obedience, that sets this whole thing in motion. And Haman is just following the example of his king. Respect is commanded, it's demanded, yet Mordecai, Esther's cousin, like Queen Vashti, refuses to obey. Uh, now, you should ask the question, why? Um, it'd be an intimidating thing. Mordecai, we know, works by the city gates. He's a, he's a government official. And when Haman passes in and out of the, the palace gates, uh, everyone bows down by order of the king, except Mordecai, right? Like, that'd be a nervous kind of thing, right? I mean, from the, just the peer pressure alone, you think that maybe you just stoop a little or, or you know, uh, indispose yourself. Sorry, I was in the bathroom or, you know, I don't know. But we should ask, why is, why is, is Mordecai refusing to bow to Haman? I mean, it is the king's command. You know, some have uh, suggested that maybe it's bad blood. Haman is, a, is an Agagite, which is, you know, and uh, Mordecai is from the tribe of Benjamin. These are, these are kind of warring tribes. They hate each other. And so, uh, or, or maybe Mordecai is just being stubborn. You know, I don't know. He has bad back. I don't know. Um, I, think the only, uh, I think the only really credible uh, reason why Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman is that he's a Jew. It is his, his Jewishness that, that 
inhibits him from bowing down. And if you know your scriptures, you realize that Mordecai is only following the example of those who have gone before him. So uh, about a hundred years before Esther and Xerxes and before this story, the Bible tells another story about a group of Jews ripped from their homes and exiled in a foreign land under a foreign king. It is the, the kingdom of the Babylonians. Do you remember who they are? His name is Daniel. And he's got three friends. Do you remember these friends? Uh, VeggieTales, Rackshack, and Benny. Um, I like uh, uh, one of my, my black pastor friends. He calls them uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and a bad Negro. Um, <clears throat> you know, these are, their, these are their kind of slave names. Like, like Esther, she receives this new name. But if you remember the story of, of uh, Rakshak and Benny in, in Daniel in chapter 3, there's this new king long before Xerxes who, who erects a statue of himself. It's nine feet wide and 90 feet tall and it's made of solid gold. And everyone is commanded to come to this statue and do what? Pay respect, to do obeisance, to bow down before the statue but, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abad Negro, they're the only three that are standing up. They refused to bow. And the king calls them before him and said, why won't you bow? And they say, you know, tough. You can kill us. You can even throw us in a fiery furnace. We're still not going to bow to you. We're still not going to bow to your God because our God will save us. Man, I like these guys. And so the king throws Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into what? The fiery furnace. You know, and the flames are so hot, it kills the guards that even throw them in. But as the king and everyone are kind of watching from a distance, guarding their eyes from the heat, what do they see? Not three guys in the furnace, but four. And the king calls them to come out, and they walk out, and they don't even smell like smoke. And they say, told you so. Right? And the king Nebuchadnezzar bows down and worships. He comes to recognize that their, their God is the God because they refused to bow. Daniel has a similar story. A, a little bit time later, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar is gone. Now there's a new king, and King Darius. And King Darius gives this command, not unlike Haman's, not unlike Nebuchadnezzar, not unlike Xerxes. He gives a command that no one is to pray except to King Darius. If you're going to pray, you have to pray to King Darius because he's not just a king, he's a god. He is super human. But Daniel, one of his own officials, refuses. Remember this story. And he continues to go and uh, the king's friends come and rat him out and report him. And the king ends up throwing Daniel into a what? A lion's den. And Daniel spends a night in the city zoo, unprotected. And in the next morning, King Darius calls out, Daniel, are you still alive? And he hears a voice back. Daniel is alive. And so the king draws Daniel out and throws in all those protractors, right? To which they're immediately consumed. 
Like those who have gone before him, Mordecai refuses to bow down to anyone and anything other than the God of heaven and earth. How about you? Have we Christians lost our backbone? Our nation is filled with questions about faith and marriage and flags and loyalty. When when everyone else around bows, have you chosen to take a stand? Because I don't think Mordecai is just an example for us, but I think he, he he is someone who gives us permission to stand. What are the areas of your life that you've allowed sin to creep in? Maybe it's been subtle or in small ways. Where have you felt the pressure to bend? To just stoop to the passions and influences in this world. I love that phrase. If you stand for nothing, you are likely to fall for what? Anything. John E. uh, Golden Gay said that the God of Daniel like the God of Mordecai, is always there when you least expect him. In, in a stone, in a crematorium oven, on a whitewashed wall, in a pit of ferocious beast. And in Daniel chapter 10, verse 19, Daniel has this vision. This, uh, he just says, it is a person like a man, but it's not a man. Come and it speaks to him. And listen what this, this messenger of God says to Daniel. I think it is powerful words for us. He says, don't be afraid, for you are very precious to God. Peace, be encouraged, be, what's the word? Strong. And as he spoke these words, Daniel said, I suddenly felt stronger. Considering Haman's reaction... Mordecai's going to need these words. He could not have possibly known that his actions would incur such wrath. Because Haman is beside himself, right? He's not just a little ticked off. He's not just miffed. No, this, is, this goes to a whole other place. His response is so incredibly over the top. The punishment definitely does not fit the crime in this case, right? The intensity of his rage tells us, clues us into the size of Haman's ego, the depth of his pride. Haman's plan would be incredibly unimaginable and unthinkable if we in our own world hadn't seen something similar. Like the genocide that happened in Rwanda. Do you guys remember In three weeks, a million people are killed with knives and machetes and shovels. Or even some of you may remember World War II. And this guy in Germany. Heyman's plan has has all the smell of the Nazi gas chambers. Heyman's plan is genocide and Haman rolls the dice 
in Scripture, they're called Purim. It's just a way of, it's, it's a way of, of getting the gods' favor. It's a way of manipulating the gods. It's a way of saying, uh, is this the right date? Yes or no? Seven. Yes. Right date. It, it, it is a way of trying to, to, to gain some sort of, of divine favor about what's happening. And the irony in this story, and you won't see it yet, but the irony is that it may be Mordecai's God rather than Haman's gods who determine Haman's lucky day. And Haman, and once the day is set, this day in March, less than a year away, Haman knows that now I have to get the king on board with this plan. So he approaches the king so nobly to, to look after the king's best interest. Look what he says. Haman approached King Xerxes and said, There's a certain race of people scattered throughout all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Now, is this about the Jews or is this about Mordecai? But see how Haman blows this up. It's not Mordecai. It's about this certain race of people. And their laws are different from those of any other people. And they, and now he gets on the hot button for King Xerxes, right? King Xerxes, the king of no limits, the king whose will be done. His greatest fear is that they would refuse to obey, right? We saw his overreaction with, with Vashti. And, and so Haman knows right where to push Xerxes' buttons. You know, these people, they won't show you any respect. They won't pay obeisance to you and the laws of the king. So, so nobly, Haman says, you know, it's really in your best interest to not let them live. Haman's, Haman's just that kind of guy looking out for the best interest of everyone. And to reinforce and make sure Haman's plan is a success, in verse 9 he'll say, um, you know, just, just to help this process along, I'll contribute to, to this plan. In fact, I'll give 10,000 large sacks of silver. All right, theologians think... 10,000 large sacks of silver is equivalent to 375 tons of silver. All right, so what we need to know first and foremost is Haman probably didn't have 375 tons of silver. But what he is saying is this gross exaggeration of what he'll commit to this. Does that make sense? Like, it, it, it's supposed to tell us something about, about Haman's heart and his intent. It's a measure of how much Haman hates Mordecai. And how much does he hate him? Yeah, 375 tons of silver. It, it shows us the incredible lengths he will go to to get the R-E-S-P-E-C-T that he thinks he deserves. Have we seen this in our world ever? Incredible links because of a title will go to protect that because I deserve. Ah. And so the king, we already know is not the sharpest match in the box or the brightest, whatever that, whatever that. I'm not either. Um, of course, you already know that. The king, 
It's, it's just my brain. Um, <laughs> the king agreed. Like, he doesn't ask any questions, at least that we know. You know, there's no kind of probing, what's this really all about? You know, what's, you know, he doesn't pick on the clue of, hey, you don't even have 375 tons. What's, why are you so ticked off? There's no probing. It just is a blind agreement. And, and to make things worse, he confirms his decision by removing his signet ring, just the, the symbol of all his power. It's, with, with that ring, Haman is no longer number two, but he operates as number one. Does that make sense? And giving it to Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite. And now scripture labels him with his true title. Haman isn't second in command. Haman is the enemy of the Jews. The foolish, manipulated king gives limitless power, remember no limits, to the enemy of the Jews, not to Hitler, but to Haman. And to make sure there is no mistake, Haman himself writes the language of the decree that's to go out. And the language is abundantly clear and abundantly gruesome. Look what it says in verse 13. Dispatches were sent by the Pony Express into all the provinces of the empire, giving the order that all Jews, young and old, women and children, must be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated on a single day. There's not much room for confusion in that, is there? In case the word killed isn't enough for you to understand, let's go ahead and add slaughtered and annihilated. And this death warrant is delivered to every corner of the empire and translated into every language. And in the story of Esther, this is the dark before the dawn. You've heard that phrase, it's always darkest before the dawn. It is a dark, dark place. And the whole kingdom is thrown, it says, into confusion. That means the, the whole city is left with one question on their lips. The question is, why? Have you been in that place before? Why is my child sick? Why have I, why have I lost my job? Why, why am I in this financial trouble? Why did I commit that crime? Or why did, why did I have to lie? Why is my marriage falling apart? Why is the cancer returned? Do you know this why? It is that cry from the darkest place when we are in our, our darkest, our lowest, or the, most, the most difficult place in, in our lives when we feel isolated and alone and confused and worried and hopeless. Even in this place, there is light. 
We think Haman probably did it on purpose, but the message goes out to the entire empire on April the 17th. We think this probably was meant to intimidate the Jewish people, but uh, its purpose actually was the opposite. It actually served the opposite purpose, whether he intended it to or not. Because April 17th for the Jews is the day before the Jews celebrate Passover. What's Passover? Do you remember this great Exodus story where all hope is lost for a Jewish people under the rule of some cruel and hateful Egyptians? They've already gone through numerous plagues and the Pharaohs refuse to let them go. You remember Charlton Heston in this? Yeah. It is a dark, hopeless, despairing place. They're going to be slaves forever. Until the Passover. And with one fell swoop, God comes in and delivers His people from the, from the very teeth of death and doom. God shows up and rescues With a city and world in confusion and fear, a world facing imminent doom and destruction, when one phone call just changed everything, when everything seems hopeless and no way out, this is all she wrote, and our fate is sealed. In their darkest hour, they are reminded of a God who saves a God who has heard their cries. And I can't pretend to know all that, all that you're facing, the struggles and darkness that surround you. And my guess, there's probably at least one of us in here that you're in that dark place. Or you know exactly what it feels like to be in that hopeless place. May you, in your darkest moments, be reminded of a God that can turn sorrow into gladness. May you be reminded that there is a God who loves you and who can turn your mourning into joy. May you be reminded of a God who sent his one and only son so that you might be saved from the grips of death. A God who in our darkest hour showed up so that you might have life and life to the full. I don't want to tell you the rest of the story, but it's, uh, it's enough for you to know Mordecai's story and Esther's story and Haman's story is not over. And uh, if you're a guy, you definitely need to come back over the next couple of weeks because it's going to get bloody and awesome. <laughs> but this is a story of a God who never abandons his people. And what they're facing, even though it's dark and horrible and terrifying, it is temporary. There is a God who saves. In just a moment, we're going to spend some time taking communion. We have stations set up at the back with the bread and the cup on each station, representing the broken body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the blood that he shed for us. And 
if you're in that dark place, and we invite you to, to, to respond also. I know I and the elders, man, we would love the opportunity to pray with you, to walk with you as a church family. We are here to do that. We are here to walk with you through that darkness, to, to remind you of the hope that can only come through Jesus Christ, to invite you to experience the life, and, and maybe it is uh, even just to wait with you through that dark place. But while we take communion, if God's put it on your heart to respond, maybe, maybe you're ready to give your life to Christ. Man, praise God. That's what we want. That's who we are. That's what we're about. If that's you, then I'm just going to move to this front corner up here while we take this time of communion. I invite you to stand up and, and to, to, to break the bread, to take the cup, share it with family and friends. Take it together. Talk about the life that Christ, had give you, Christ has given you. It is a communal experience. I invite you to do it together. Will you pray with me? Father God, I thank you so much um, for the power of your words, for the power of, of Esther's story. Father God, let us be like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Let us be like, like Mordecai who refused to bow down. God, even though we're weak and we're scared and, and things are dark, Father God, let our hope rest in you. Let us, let us hold on to you when, when everything else falls away. Let us have the strength that, that you fill Daniel with. Father God, let us be encouraged. And Father God, in our world, we know people are walking in darkness. They are far from the light, and, and they are alone, and they are scared, and they are discouraged. And so, Father God, let us be your ambassadors who share the, your light, who share the life, who share the love, who, who share all of the goodness that you bring. Let us speak to our world and remind the world that God has not forgotten this place. Father God, we have this incredible message to share with our world because of your son, Jesus Christ. And God, as we, uh, our country celebrated freedom yesterday, we celebrate the only true freedom that we know we can have is freedom from sin because of your son today. As we take this cup and as we eat this bread, we remember his sacrifice for us. While we were still sinners, God, you sent your son to die for us so that we would live. Father God, we love you. Thank you so much for the power of your word, for the movement of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would bless this time as we enter into this time of communion. And in Jesus' name, everyone together says, Amen. I invite you to a time of communion.